Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Momenta on the Main Line. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Joanna Holleran. And I'm Dr. Alon Green. We're here to talk about all things health, wellness, fitness, performance, and overall well-being. Hope you enjoy the show. perspective in a training for optimal health, performance, and overall resiliency. His career thus far includes working in multiple sectors of strength and conditioning, including working on the strength and conditioning staff at UCLA, where he trained athletes ranging from Olympic track and field to soccer, volleyball, swimming, and basketball. He worked at Jay Glazer's Unbreakable Performance, training athletes, including professional MMA fighters and NFL stars. He then went on to work at Impact Basketball, focusing on helping collegiate stars prepare for the NBA combine training, international teams, including the Indonesian national basketball team and working with elite level NBA players looking to gain a competitive advantage. He then accepted a role working on the strength and conditioning staff for the Indiana Pacers during the 2018, 2019 NBA season. When he came back, he took a job working at Mamba sports Academy as an internship coordinator in charge of high school and collegiate athletic development. Now, he's currently working at Monarch Athletic Club in West Hollywood, a facility that provides a multidisciplinary, science-based approach to health and wellness, led by a team of physicians, physiotherapists, and strength and conditioning staff. Ladies and gentlemen, Coach Nate Shemtov. Hey, hey, thanks for having me, bro. I appreciate you bringing me on, and uh, it's an honor, bro. Yeah. Can't wait to get into it. As our our first uh, podcast episode, as soon as we had the idea of actually starting the podcast, I was like, I got to interview Nate. I feel like he has so much interesting, you know, background and, uh, I feel like it's a perfect place to start. So I appreciate you being here. Yeah, bro. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited to dive in, uh, get some of your insights based on your experience working in all these different environments, uh, within the entire field of strength and conditioning. Um, we should probably take a step back, uh, give some folks, uh, some background on the path that has led up to this point. So good first question. What, what initially sparked your, uh, interest in pursuing a career in strength and conditioning? Yeah, um, I feel like this is a common theme across the board for most people in this industry, but we're essentially athletes that just didn't make it, you know? Like, um, <laughs> it's, it's like the sad truth, but it's not really that sad. We just, you know, you accept it and you move on. It's like those who can't do teach. So um, I just knew, you know, I, I grew up obsessed with basketball, playing basketball. I just, you know, I played high school, uh, JV varsity, nothing, nothing crazy, no collegiate or pro or anything. But, um, I just knew that I just wanted my life to be involved with basketball at, at some degree. I don't care if I'm a water boy or, you know, tile boy, whatever it is, I'm going to make it happen. And, uh, I just knew that I like to nerd out on, uh, physiology and like how, the, how the body works. And, you know, I grew up as a, larger larger kid I was a pretty chubby kid growing up so there was a point where I you know I turned it around and lost a bunch of weight and that whole process kind of interested me interested me and uh sparked my interest in like I said before physiology and biology and all the sciences so um it kind of just grew from there I, I found out what you know kinesiology was and um it just yeah it just bloomed 
Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say, it cause I, I feel like a lot of people that end up pursuing it are athletes. Right. And I, right. I know myself, it, it was like, you know, what, what's going to get me the closest to being on the field. Cause I know I'm not going to be on the field, you know, right. or the quarter, whatever it may be. And it's also interesting because I know, um, the people who really thrive in the profession and also the people who truly have a passion for it, right. That are, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk and then end up kind of pursuing some of those, uh, paths like kinesiology, um, and, you know, just kind of learning some of the more textbook stuff that, that can then help to take you to the next level. Um, so I know you mentioned you grew up playing sports, grew up playing basketball, and I'm curious, did you have any specific coach that you felt was somebody that you hoped to embody growing up? I know back then you may not have thought about being a strength coach or anything like that, but did you have somebody that helped you get acquainted in the weight room or, or, you know, a, a sports coach that kind of helped to, you know, pique that interest in you? Yeah. Um, yeah, honestly, not really. Um, uh, <laughs> I feel like I grew up back in the, back in the time where, uh, when, you know, the weight room was looked down upon or was, uh, demonized that's a better word for it was the weight room was demonized back in back when i was a kid it was don't touch weights it's going to mess up your jumper it's going to stunt your growth um etc cetera, etc cetera. whatever all the whatever all those other myths you get to bulky i don't know like it's just these these things that obviously weren't true but you were told by just other kids or just people that obviously aren't qualified to have these opinions or state these statements um, just telling you these things. And so you just believe it and you're like, all right, I guess I'm not touching weight. So growing up, we, we had, we did have a strength and conditioning coach though. Um, and when we would train, when we were training the off season, it was mostly just like a, like a clinic. So he would, we would run stairs. We would either meet on campus where, where we had a set of stairs or we would meet at the Santa Monica stairs and we just do a ridiculous amount of running and stairs and like plyos up the stairs and uh him tying a band around me and around him and he's a big dude um he's like i don't know i'm gonna guess like six four you know and a pretty pretty bulky guy i had to drag his big butt up the stairs so um he would just run us you know um and like one of the interesting things i remember just outside of the going to the stairs and doing all that stuff is uh for conditioning this is in season as well but for conditioning we would uh, we would have to run on campus, which our campus was pretty close, like probably a mile away from the beach. Um, make us run down the hill to the beach and come back with a handful of sand to prove that we've made mm -hmm. it down to the beach. You know, <laughs> um, I just remember that being pretty interesting. And that's always stuck with me, but just cause it was like pretty tough, but um, yeah. Yeah. I, well, it's, it's interesting that you say that. Cause I feel like, uh, well, now that you're talking about it and thinking back to my high school days, I remember some weight room stuff. I remember we had uh, one Olympic platform and the only person that was allowed to use it was like the coach's son. Cause the coach didn't want to teach anybody else how to deadlift safe. And, you know, so <laughs> yeah. weightlifting was pretty much bench pressing and a right. running. It was always like conditioning was running. Yeah. And, and yeah. so I, I guess that's a, that's a good segue into, you know, in comparison to what's available now, especially for that age group. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? It seems like things have become a bit more accessible. Um, and maybe that's just biased from being in the industry or, or, you know, working with strength coaches, but, but do you feel like, like information has kind of gotten out there more and, and the standard has been raised since we were kids? 
I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely come a long way, and like you like you mentioned, it's way more accessible now than it's ever been. I mean, the rise of obviously the internet and social media, especially, has given everyone access to essentially whatever they want and whatever they need. Um, and I think it's it's out there for everyone. I mean, obviously, there's different levels to this in terms of who do you follow and what sort of content are you looking for? Because you mentioned people that are not in the industry and all that, but um, I have friends that are not in the industry and, you know, they'll, they'll be like, Hey, what do you think about this workout or this movement or whatever it is? And, you know, um, it, it's interesting that what, they, what they're, what they're able to find, um, you know, mostly it's like bodybuilding type of stuff, um, which is, you know, the easier stuff and stuff that's most appealing. Um, but when you're looking at the athletic development sort of stuff, you want to be able to find some reputable sources, um, and people that are you know doing, doing, providing valuable content and doing good things out there. Yeah. Well, so, so follow-up question to that. I know, um, there might be some parents listening or there might be people who are, um, you know, still kind of chasing their athletic dreams and, and looking for, uh, like you said, reputable, credible, you know, uh, people who are, who are really good at this stuff. And so, um, what are some recommendations that you might have? Like, what are things that people should be looking for when they seek out a strength coach to, to kind of better their athletic development? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've worked with a bunch of kids up until this point, and I can definitely tell you that parents are looking for any little advantage, um, you know, any, any little advantage, whether it's, you know, with, with you in person, or they're going to ask you about supplements and this and that, whatever it is. So, um, definitely my advice to parents out there is to, you know, to find someone that's qualified. I know that's easier said than done, but find someone that's qualified and someone that keeps it simple. Usually the, the simpler someone keeps it, typically the more qualified that, that they are. And, um, you know, you want to, you want to have someone that's just not going to run them into the ground. You want them to teach them. You want to be able to teach a kid skills and follow essentially what's called the long-term athletic development model. Um, at the appropriate age, whatever, and also training age. And, you know, just, just work them up from there. You want to set that kid up for success for the, for the long run, whether that kid stays with you for X amount of time or not, you want to set them up for whatever the, for whatever their next step is and for the rest of their life. So yeah. prioritizing quality of movement is huge. Um, prioritizing athletic skills, such as, you know, jumping, hopping, skipping, shuffling, cutting, linear acceleration, multi-directional movement like these are all applicable to any sport and they're important for any young athlete to understand because that's going to already give them a competitive advantage over the rest of the kids who are you know not putting that extra time um in in the weight room or on the field or whatever it is yeah it's important for them for them to learn these skills not just from a strength perspective a development perspective but from an injury prevention perspective it's it's huge you know like i know i know Unfortunately, I know a handful of kids who have been too injured too early in their lives. Like forget about athletics, just in their lives in general. And it's sad to see, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely, definitely big, big advantage for the, for the parents is finding someone that keeps it simple and understands like on a long-term athletic development is is the way to go for kids. Yeah. Okay. So I I have two follow-up questions for you. First one, just when we talk about like, um, looking for something that would qualify somebody as, you know, a knowledgeable, you know, trusted source. Are there any qualifications that you look for certifications, uh, background, uh, kind of like keywords that you look for if somebody's kind of doing a search for, um, 
you know, sports performance training in their area? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I know there's a lot of alphabet soup out there with all the certifications that are out <laughs> there. True. So, and I know what, no, I know like, like nobody cares about those and nobody knows what they all mean, but the gold standard for strength and conditioning is the CSCS, the certified strength and conditioning specialist. Um, I'm not saying that everyone with this certification is, you know, going to be fantastic, but it's a, definitely a bare minimum for anyone in the industry. Um, so that's definitely a key word. The CSCS is definitely something to look for. And then outside of that, hopefully, you know, this person has experience working in the team setting, whether it's a high school, college, um, pro, whatever it is. So like, hopefully if they have that sort of background, they're, they're seasoned, they're not, you know, they're not too green into the game and, um, you know, they have some knowledge under the belt. Right. It's, it's a little bit more applicable rather than thinking about, you know, from the outside, what would be best in that team setting. Um, so right. the, the second question I had for you was um, kind of a follow-up when it came to, um, you know, you listed out things that I think are really important, like athletic skills that you should focus on, especially for younger athletes, just kind of the basics, like jumping, hopping, skipping, shuffling, cutting, linear acceleration, all the basic kind of movements that fill out um, a lot of the sports that everybody plays. Um, and it, it got me thinking about this concept of, I think sometimes when we think of training or hear about training, we think about people that are working hard and that hard work immediately kind of leads to athletic development. So what are your thoughts right. on that kind of concept or, or that spectrum of uh, working hard versus working smart? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's an old adage, you know, work smarter, not harder. That's definitely true. I mean, working hard is obviously important that we're not, you know, we're not taking naps at, during training, but um, it's just about having a, a purpose and a goal in mind. You know, you don't want to just work hard for the sake of working hard. You want to have uh, a goal in mind. You know, you want to you want to have a why. Why are we doing this movement? Why are we picking this rep scheme? Why are we Why are we having um, Why are we doing X, Y, and Z exercises? These movements, like this, that's what matters. If I If I can ask you why you're doing X, Y, and Z, and you have you have a, an appropriate answer and a reasoning, then that's great. But if you say just because I saw it, I saw a video or just because it's hard or whatever, it's, it's not good enough. You're not, you're not, you're not doing the athlete justice. You know, you're doing a, a disservice and you're probably going to run them into the ground. So you want to be able to have a plan, have a purpose and just execute, you know, and not, and not, you know, not everything needs to be perfect. It's okay to, to um, experiment a little bit. However, you want to you want to make sure that anything you ever program for an athlete, youth, pro, whatever, anything in between, make sure you you can do that yourself, and make sure you you know what it feels like. So, a you can sympathize, you know what it feels like, you know how much rest or the appropriate volume or whatever it is, you can you can you know you can write that out and plan that out, and um, so you're not just doing random stuff for the sake of uh, it being hard. Right. Well, I think that's actually another kind of perfect segue into the next question. Um, so kind of getting off of the topic of uh, just programming for younger athletes and, and kind of getting more into some of your experience working with some of the more um, elite competitive athletes. I, I think just in general, you have some interesting insights into programming for all different populations working in, you know, 
private sector working, uh, you know, at the collegiate level working in pro sports, especially with the, the Pacers. And so I guess my first question is, um, kind of around, we get glimpses all the time, these like highlight reels of, uh, professional athletes training, especially in the private sector. And I think some people see it, they'll replicate it, but I think kind of like you said, there's usually a lot of planning and purpose that goes into developing a program for an athlete. Um, and we only get to see the highlights. So my question is, you know, what goes into programming for a, a pro athlete? Like, what do you, where do you start? Uh, what are the types of um, things that you need to think about the, the information that you need to kind of approach training for somebody at that level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just it's a good segue. Just go, talking about purpose. I mean, to start with, if, you know, if an, if an athlete reaches out to you and wants to work in the off season or whatever it is, whether they're pro or not, you want to make sure you're assessing. So, um, you know, the, there's an old adage that says, you know, if you're not assessing, you're guessing, right? And you don't want to be guessing. You want to make sure you have a starting point, you have a baseline, and that could that could be any number of things. I mean, everyone's got different gadgets and gizmos, and, and maybe you don't, which is totally fine, but you want to make sure you have some sort of way to quantify a baseline objectively. So, I mean, first things first, from, from just getting to know the person and the athlete in front of you is get a training background, right? Understand if they've lifted weights, how long, what they, what, what things are, what sort of things are, what they're familiar with. Do they even know what a deadlift is or what it looks like? Um, uh, injury history. So you can know if there are any contraindications in terms of movement from a, from a joint uh, from a joint uh, capacity perspective, from, from a muscul- musculotendon uh, perspective as well. You want to make sure you're not going to accrue any soft tissue injuries just because you overlooked a few small details. Um, and then from there, it's about, like I said before, gain that, gain that object, objective data. So whether you have something like force plays, Nord boards, jump mats at your disposal, maybe you have none of those things and it's totally fine. But if you do, then you can do something that's called uh, force velocity profiling, which is you can essentially just figure out what sort of athlete <clears throat> Uh, that person is when, in terms in context of a force velocity curve. Are they are they more springy and elastic like a Vince Carter, or are they more force and power dominant? Um, I can't think of an example, but essentially someone that's that you wouldn't think of being very elastic and springy. You know, um, Shaq, someone that's right? more force dominant. Shaq, Shaq, Shaq yeah. doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. Totally. Yeah, I was the first first one that first person that came to mind was Roy Hibbert, and I didn't want to say that. So, anyways, <laughs> I was like, people might not even know who that is at this point. But anyways, yeah, that's a great example. Are you more force dominant? Um, are you just strong, or are you like really springy and powerful? You know, and, and if they are one, then you probably need the other thing. You know, you probably if someone's like if someone exactly if Zach Levine walks in walks in the door and wants to turn with me. I probably don't need to do a ton of extensive plyometrics working on like ground, minimal ground contact time and that sort of stuff. Cause he already has it. Like we need to work on the other things, the other side of things, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's just an example. But anyways, um, other ways you can assess an athlete, like I said before, talking about from a joint perspective, passive range of motion and active range of motion, you can see a deficit there at the hips and the shoulders are probably the two most important joints the big global joints you can work at look at. Um, obviously there's many, many more joints in the body, but those are like the big 
those are like two big pillars that can really set you up for success if you really attack those and understand um, how those how those joints really um, contribute to training, movement, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, and probably most importantly, above anything else, if you don't even have any way to measure objective data, it's okay. But you need to understand the sport. And if you know what it needs analysis is, then that's the way to go. And if you don't, then I'll just quickly quickly just under, uh, give yeah. you an understanding of what that is. So a needs analysis is essentially what are the needs of the sport, right? So let's take basketball, for example. You want to think of all of the things that basketball involves. And I'll just give you a few things off the top of my head, but like you're talking about dimensions of the, of the court, number of minutes in a quarter, the average number of time that, the, that a possession lasts number of games in the season, energy systems demand of, of the sport. So like meaning when I say energy system demands and I, before I said uh, like how long or how was the average uh, length of a possession, those two come hand in hand. If you understand how long an average possession is, then you probably know what sort of uh, energy systems are demanded of that sport. So like basketball, it's a pretty glycolytic sport and also an aerobic sport because they're going for X amount of time and you, you have to be able to recover in between bouts of uh, bouts of possessions, but there's also a lot of dead ball. There's fouls, there's turnovers, timeouts, et cetera, et cetera, end of quarters, halftime, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, it's, a, it's an intermittent sport and you're able to produce um, high levels of force and activity in those short bouts if, you're, if, if the possessions are shorter. If, you know, for example, like games that go on to overtime, you obviously want to account for those type of things, but they don't happen very often. So you'll notice like starters will play typically, let's just throw a number out there, 35 plus minutes a game. Those guys are going to have to be really well conditioned and even more conditioned because in, in, when the game runs into overtime or double overtime or whatever, they're going to have to be in even better shape than a normal game length just in case those things happen and they're able to sustain the production throughout the game if it goes into overtime, stuff like that. Right. But anyways, going, going down the list of a needs analysis, we're talking about outside energy system demands. You're talking about most common injuries. How do you combat those things? How are you going to prepare for those things as best as you can? What are the planes of motion that you that are most frequently seen in the sport? What are the positions that are most frequently seen in the sport? And also what are positions and planes of motion that are most frequently seen in a specific position? What do guards typically see themselves in? What do bigs typically see themselves in? You know, like if you take a person like Kyrie Irving, who's so fantastic with the ball, but if you take still shots of him doing his crossovers or dribbling the ball, he's so low to the ground and those joint angles are so intense. The level, the level, the amount of hip internal rotation and external rotation and ankle inversion and eversion that he puts his body through just getting so low to the ground on his crossover that takes a lot of strength and a lot of strength and end ranges of um, end ranges of flexibility and mobility to be able to sustain those without getting hurt and repeat those over and over again throughout the game and needless to say like with throughout the season you know so mm-hmm. um, well, so just just to kind of stop you there because I think you bring up sure. a really interesting point and I know that there are going to be people in sports medicine um, either, you know, working with athletes or wanting to work with athletes. And I think that that you bring up a really cool point and it's one we're, we're talking about when it comes to training specificity seems to be kind of the key, right? Specificity right. when it comes to the demands of whatever sport they're playing from both 
like what the sport requires from like, you know, movement wise, but also what it requires metabolically strength demands, the types of specific movements. Um, right. And then also you kind of bring up some interesting insights into the uniqueness of the individuals, um, their overall uh, build and an ability to move can sometimes make them better. It can define their strengths. So the reason that, you know, right. Shaq succeeds in the way that he plays or Kyrie succeeds in the way that he plays is because their bodies essentially are matched to the strengths that their skills kind of complement, right? And so getting back, because I know we talked a bit about, you know, the needs analysis and whatnot. And I know that that transfers through, it's going to change depending on the, um, you know, the sector of sports that you're in. And I know even when it comes to the higher competitive levels, when it comes to collegiate and professional level needs analysis, even though it's the same approach, it can look completely different. So I guess starting comparing um, training athletes at like a private gym um, versus being on staff at UCLA or in the Pacers organization. So kind of talking private sector, collegiate sector and professional level. Um, what are, what are some of the main differences in just being in those environments when it comes to approaching training? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, different sectors, I'll just start with the private sector. That's where I currently am now. So um, when working in the private sector, you can essentially do whatever you want from a training perspective because it's your environment it's your world especially if you own the place of business then obviously you can do whatever you want unless you know you're if, you, if you're a subordinate or an employee and then you might have a program that someone else writes that you have to follow but anyways i digress so essentially in the in the private sector it's i mean the number one priority is business right is money coming in because the rent has to be paid you know, if you don't pay your bills and you don't have a business anymore. So number one is you have to do what's best for the company. Um, and yeah, just move on. Just, and then training essentially like, unfortunately comes second. Um, next from a training perspective, you can, you can really, you have more, if you're typically you have more time with the athletes, you might see them every day. You might see them three, four times a week, whatever it is, whatever frequency of training you you know, you program out. So if you have that much time with them, then you can just really work on the nuances of training, the nuances nuances that relate to the person themselves. Um, especially if you've done your due diligence and assess them, then you really have a lot of time to work on all the things as opposed to just working on the big rocks, the big compound movements, which are really important, but um, you have more time to do those things. So you can hit every single aspect that you want to, because it's, essentially like your space and you can mm-hmm. your private space and you can do whatever you want, you know? And then lastly is like, that's, you know, this is more important than anything else is building relationships. You, you know, you want, you, you get to know, you get to know each other, you become friends, you go out to lunch, whatever it is, like you're building relationship with the human first athlete second. And, you know, they're going to, they're going to grow to appreciate you, trust you and probably stick with you for the rest of their athletic careers, you know? Um, and then moving on to like collegiate sector, mm-hmm. it's a totally different game. I mean, the collegiate sector is a revolving door. Um, the NCAA has guidelines that limit the number of hours per day and per week an athlete can participate in athletics. So that means in the sport and in the weight room. So like, for example, uh, in the in season, an athlete can only participate in athletics 
up to four hours a day and 20 hours a week, right? And out of season, they can they can only partic- participate in athletics for four four hours per day and eight hours per week. It's a huge difference, 20 hours a week to eight hours a week. So unfortunately, because they're not collegiate weightlifters, they're collegiate athletes, they're playing a sport, you don't get to say, you don't really get to have much time with them because the sport coaches are going to take a majority of those hours, right? So like if I have a basketball player, coach is going to want them on the floor as much as they're going to soak, they're going to suck up as many of those hours that the NCAA is, uh, is uh, allowing them to. And they're going to take a higher percentage of those hours. And then you're stuck with whatever that coach is going to allow you to, you know, you're at the mercy of the coach essentially and the NCAA. Now, the way you can get around that is, you know, if, if, if an athlete wants to voluntarily uh, spend more time, they can. Um, but most athletes don't. That's, that's just the truth. Um, but, you know, the way that you work with that, and like I said before, when I, t- when I talk about big rocks and big compound movements, this is where they really come into play. This is where you're really hammering your Olympic lifts, your squats, benches, deadlifts, lunges, all that, all the big, all the big stuff, because you only have probably one hour, uh, one hour, definitely one hour a day, but maybe, maybe you only have, I don't know, two hours a week with them, whatever it is, three hours a week, if you're lucky, um, with that athlete. So you want them to get as much bang for their buck as possible with you. So you don't just like, just like pretty much contrast to the private sector, you don't have time to work on, I don't know, ankle stability or uh, like you really have time to, to work on like as much hip mobility as you'd like to, or whatever it is, you just don't have that time. Unfortunately, unless that, like I said, the athlete is going to volunteer and spend extra time with you. Um, that's just, but however, it just doesn't happen that, that often. Right now what's, what's, or go ahead. Well, and, and so I was just going to say, and, and typically I think it kind of leads back to what we were talking about before, where we say, especially like, you know, private sector, um, highlights where, where there are these, uh, a lot of like fantastic coaches where the, you'll see these snippets of training where they are focusing on like really specific, um, components, uh, whether it's like a, a certain skill acquisition, whether it's gaining mobility, creating stability, um, right. you know, and so you get these people who are known for specific things because they're able to kind of, uh, revolve or like become known in the private sector for those like niche training approaches versus, you know, uh, like some of the the collegiate programs where you're talking about, it's focused on more compound movements, right? Can can you go into a little bit of detail, uh, just kind of like, just if somebody's brand new to the concept of like a, like what is a compound movement? Um, why is it the most bang for your buck just to kind of give some of the basics in that regard? Yeah, for sure. Um, essentially all, again, it all goes back to having a purpose in your training, you know? So if, if my purpose as a support staff for, let's just say the collegiate basketball team, my job as appointed by the head coach is to make their athletes bigger, stronger, faster. And the way you're going to do that is by creating as much mechanical stress, metabolic stress and, a horm- and thus creating a hormonal response. Um, you want to, you want to create that response as much as possible and that's going to happen um, with those big compound movements, you know, like a squat hinge or squat, deadlift, bench press, clean, snatch. Um, those are like 
essentially that's kind of it. I mean, right. I'm not saying you're not doing, I'm not saying you're not doing anything else, but you're doing a lot of that. You're doing right. a lot of those. Like better, better you know? to focus on some of the big movements that require multiple, you know, joints in the body moving at once rather than hammering out a bunch of bicep curls and, you know, right. trying to get stronger that way. Um, exactly. So, so I guess, you know, it seems like, like one of the biggest limitations, especially when it comes to, um, training in-house, uh, for, like collegiate programs is the access that you have to players. How does that transfer when you get to the pro level? So you worked with the Pacers, you got to spend a bunch of time. And I know, um, you know, a lot of people, especially people who might be listening, whether they're, you know, pursuing strength and conditioning, if they're in, but curious about working with, you know, pro athletes, I think sometimes it's difficult to um, program and kind of like find the best way to approach those types of players, because it's hard to understand exactly what their schedules are like. And so what is, you know, I guess to give people a better idea of, of what really goes into being a professional athlete from the strength and conditioning standpoint is like, right. What does that, what does that look like when you're in house? Yeah, totally. I'm just going to touch on one more thing before I, before I answer. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, So back going back to collegiate thing really quickly, even though you only have limited amount of time, all that means is you have to be really, really good at planning. You like yeah. you have to have a ha- you have to have an annual plan because you know what the academic year looks like. You know exactly where these athletes are going to be at what times. So that makes you a really good planner. And again, you're going to have to have a re- you're going to have to have really good train sound training principles in order to create a really good training effect and also to help these athletes perform when they need to. So you're going to peak X amount of times during the season or during the year. So when they have their big competition, they're feeling good. They're feeling athletic. They're feeling fast and powerful for whatever that event is, whether it's the tournament or otherwise. Um, and lastly, unfortunately for the athletes, or maybe not, they have to listen to you. Like uh, if they don't, they you know like they they can get in trouble. So NCAA athletes, they have to follow a lot of a lot of rules, a lot of guidelines, which you know, sometimes sucks, but honestly, it's, it's for the betterment of the athlete because you want, you need them to show up. The more frequently they show up, the more, the better training effect and the more inputs they're going to get. Now, the way that translates over to the, to the, pro, to, to the professional level is, and also the private sector is these, these are, these are, these are adults. These are professionals, you know, like they're going to show up if and when they want to. Um, that's like, that's number one. They don't have to do anything unless you have a head coach and I'll just throw a name out there. Cause he's the first guy, first guy that comes to mind, like Luke Walton, who like really has um, really, really, really supports the, just really, really supports training essentially in the weight room. Mm-hmm. So he, he's going to mandate it. He's going to, he's going to support it. He's going to require it of all, of all of his, of all of his athletes. And he's going to, you know, nobody wants to get fined, but some players just don't care. Unfortunately, like some players, right. They'll, they'll take the fine. They'll be like, you know what? Fine me. I don't care. Like take my money. I just don't want to, I don't want to lift for whatever reason. And you know, as time, as time has gone on, that's um, become less and less of the narrative, but it's still, it's still out there. Now right. from my own experience, the Pacers were fantastic. Uh, we had a great culture. We had Nate McMillan who was fantastic and who was a great supporter of us, like of the strength and conditioning staff. And end of the end of the sports medicine team, he's like, get your massages, get your training in, 
uh, do whatever you have to do to perform. That was like the bottom line. Whatever, whatever it takes you to show up every night and play and, and feel good about it, do it. Like whether that means you go home and take a nap or you get two massages a day or you chill in the cold tub or you, or maybe you just need to listen to some music. I don't know. Whatever it is, just, just go get that done. Right. And uh, the support staff is there to help you, you know, achieve that and feel, feel that way. Um, now, the part where it gets challenging on the pro side is you're at the mercy of the game schedule. And now like, for example, if you're in the NFL, it's a really easy to get your training in because you know exactly when your games are going to be, you're playing once a week and for 16 weeks and you're done, you know, like NFL is super easy to plan for. However, the NBA is not, you are playing maybe twice a week or maybe five times a week back to back or not, you know, like, and then in between all that, you're flying and checking into hotels and checking out of hotels. Nobody's getting any sleep. Um, nobody feels fresh. <laughs> nobody feels good. Like even support staff, because everyone like you play a game at 7 p.m. Game ends at you know 9:30 or 10. You're gonna you're gonna grab something. You're gonna grab something to eat after. All of a sudden it's 11. Then you have to check out of your hotel and go go catch a plane. All of a sudden it's uh, it's midnight and you're just getting on the plane and you have to fly to fly across the country and you arrive at, I don't know, four or 5. AM. And then you have to, you have to, and then you have to check into the hotel and figure out how you're going to get your butt to sleep and, you know, feel ready for the next game. So, yeah. uh, you know, everyone thinks, you know, pro sports are, you know, really super lavish, lavish and luxurious and, you know, it can be absolutely, but it's, you know, during the season, it's just, get it done. Like whatever right. it takes to get it, whatever it takes to perform, whatever it takes to get it done, you do it. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'm not, you know, it's not bad. It's just, it's just a grind and you have to be ready for it. Yeah. Well, so, so I guess, and you touched on it too, where there are, there are differences in culture, right? There are different right. priorities just because it's all professional level across the board doesn't necessarily mean that they're all taking the same approaches. And, and it seems like, right. uh, especially working at those levels, uh, working as a team and being able to communicate well on what needs to happen seems to be the key. And so it's interesting to hear you kind of talk a little bit about people who, um, you know, like coaches, coaching staffs, uh, even like ownership that, that really kind of prioritize, um, taking care of the players, whether it's, you know, really encouraging them to show up to strength and conditioning sessions, uh, to right. show up, to actually get the tissue work done or, or do whatever actually helps them to kind of prepare. And I, I think that's a good thing to consider, especially for people that do want to, you know, kind of, uh, that have a goal to end up working with a, a professional sports team, whether it's in the realm of sports right. medicine, or if it's in the realm of, you know, performance and training to just kind of understand that team mindset where everybody has a specific role, but everybody is really trying to, um, set priorities to figure out how they can, you know, find success with the people that they have. So, I mean, that's, right. it's all really helpful information. Um, yeah. So kind of moving on, I, I know there are also going to be a lot of people that just like you and me, you know, want to be pros, but we aren't, <laughs> we're not professional <laughs> yeah. athletes, uh, but we still like training. We still like playing. We still like being athletic. And so I guess uh, right. transitioning into kind of what you're doing now, especially, um, which is training in a really athletic manner, um, and kind of like applying a lot of the same concepts that you've taken, because 
like we talked about earlier, like a needs, a needs analysis approach can be used regardless of, you know, whatever population that you're training. So, um, for people that are kind of seeking out, um, you know, coaches to train more athletically, um, or for coaches to kind of better understand, um, how somebody like you, who's had experience in all those different, you know, environments, uh, views training for general population when it comes to being more athletic in the, in the types of exercise and approach that you take. Uh, Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here's one thing I've noticed and, um, I just don't know what the, what the answer is just because it's hard to, um, it's just hard for people to gain, not gain access to, but really just learn on their own. So you're going to need a coach for this, but you know, just like weekend warriors, just like, I mean, how, you know, how I am now I'll play, I'll play basketball, you know, a couple of times a week just to, just to feel like an athlete, just cause I, you know, it's fun to play basketball, but, um, you'll see people that play sports recreationally, but they don't train for it. They just, you know, they'll take a more bodybuilding approach to, to training just cause that's all they know. And that's mm-hmm. all they're, that's all they're willing to take it. And they'll, they'll realize like soft, soft tissue injuries will happen here. Um, or they're just not really getting better at the sport cause they're just, you know, doing bench press and bicep curls and sort of stuff like that. Now people have different yeah. priorities and that's fine, but you know, if you want to get better at your sport, you're going to have to do something that's, you know, a little bit closer to being athletic than that. But anyways, to get to your question for people that want to train athletically and everything. Um, and for coaches out there that are training those people, you just make sure you're meeting them where they're at. I mean, it's, um, from a, like, just like I talked about before, it's, if you're not assessing, you're guessing, right? So you want to meet them where they're at from, uh, from an injury history perspective, training age perspective, uh, you know, the requisite movement capacity and movement proficiency perspective, you want to make sure like you're not just throwing a bar on the, on someone's back for the sake of, for sake of doing a back squat. You know, you want to be able to meet them where they're at because they can still get the same training effects with any implement. It's just a matter of how creative are you and you know, what's your process, you know, mm-hmm. um, and how are you going to, how are you going to get that person to where they need to be? And this goes for any, whether it's, you know, the weekend warrior or pro athlete, how are you going to get them to where they need to be? You know, you want to have an end goal, in mind and you want to reverse engineer that you know that's how that's how collegiate strength and conditioning that's how collegiate programming is made because you know like i said you know what the annual plan is you know when their games are you know when their tournaments are you know when the off season is so you want to be able to peak at certain times of the year so you want to reverse engineer that and get them to where they need to be um now obviously for a general population person this is not really the case unless they have an event like hey i'm going to run a marathon or hey i'm going to I have a basketball tournament, whatever it is. Like, it's not very, it's not very common, but you can also reverse engineer that way. But for someone who doesn't have events that they're getting ready for, it's just about being generally prepared and generally strong. And that's, that's, and that's kind of it. And and it's just a matter of what is your approach to getting there, you know, and Mm -hmm. hopefully, hopefully you're weighing risk, risk and reward. And you're not going to, you know, have, you're not going to put someone in harm's way just for the sake of, making them feel a certain way or making you feel a certain way because maybe you're bored with the session or you're bored with the programming or whatever it is. So just make sure you, you know, you put the client first and um, you're just not doing any harm or anything like that. Right. Well, so, so, I mean, there's kind of this theme of purpose and specificity and intention when it comes to approaching training. And so I guess from, right. uh, from my world, especially being a chiropractor, I, I don't 
like when people are in office, they're coming in for usually either soft tissue or, uh, you know, some sort of like musculoskeletal injury. And so I know a lot right. of chiropractors out there who, um, you know, are sports oriented. Um, some of them have fantastic backgrounds in strength and conditioning. Um, and I guess kind of like where this is leading into is for somebody who didn't kind of, um, spend time getting experience in the field. Uh, generally we ask, you know, like, do you, do you exercise like on their first visit when they come in, you know, they come in with like back pain or whatever it is like, do you exercise, what do you do for exercise? And then sometimes it'll be like, Oh, I strength train, you know? And so it'll be like, and and then just kind of like leaving it at that. Right. It's like, well, there's, there's a lot more detail that goes into the type of exercise that they're doing. Um, and whether or not that's contributing to their overall goal. So we always ask, you know, functional outcomes, what is it that you're trying to get back to? And so all this to kind of like lead into a question where it's like, uh, well, I know right now you're, you're working at Monarch and, and we'll kind of get into that in just a sec, but when it comes to kind of communicating, especially with people from the sports med side of things that are kind of working to, you know, rehab the issues, um, talking to those types of practitioners, um, what's the conversation like when it comes to, you know, kind of making that referral or working together, being able to work with a strength coach to say like, Hey, you know, this person has this type of injury going on. This is what we're doing in office. Um, but just being able to have that communication around their goals. What, what's, you know, what are your experiences with that? What, uh, what tips do you have, I guess, for people on, on my side to come in to be able to kind of have that conversation? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's a blessing to be able to have, um, like sports medicine, professional professionals and strength and conditioning staff under one roof. We learn so much from each other and I've learned so much throughout my time, um, uh, in my most, you know, in, in my job now at Monarch, but, um, it's, I just let, I just let the sports medicine staff tell me what I can and can't do essentially. And, if I can, and I, if I have the background, if I have the, you know, the knowledge to be able to, um, if I have the knowledge to be able to, be able to help and provide a certain stimulus that mm-hmm. the PT staff, that the, that the PT staff needs, then I'm going to, I'm going to do that, you know? So for someone that, you know, I can just give it like a super simple exa- example, but for someone that's experiencing low back pain and we've, and you know the the PT staff has done their due diligence of assessing that person, and they've <clears throat> come to the conclusion that that this person lacks a certain amount of hip uh, hip extension and hip external rotation, and that's they think that's what the that's what the biggest contributing factor to their low back pain. Then we're mm-hmm. going to work on hip extension and hip external rotation and hammer that stuff home. Get as many frequent good inputs and stimulus as much as we can. And more often than not, more often than not, the PT staff is right. So I'm going to listen to them, you know, so right. um, we're, we're going to hammer that stuff home and then we're going to do things that are going to, you know, help drive that stimulus even more. And, but we're also still going to train, you know, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to sit and stretch and sit and do mobility, mobility drills for the, for much of the, much of the session, but I am going to spend the first X amount of time, whatever it takes to open up that, that capsule space or whatever it is to ha- help that person access and also train in this new found train range of motion. You know, yeah. you want to be able to, you want to be able to access it and also build strength in that new end range. So um, it's huge for like needless to say, it's huge to be able to have that support and that, that resource. Yeah. But in, and kind of what I'm hearing too, is that, you know, everybody kind of like plays role, uh, like plays their specific role toward kind of 
you know, focusing on getting that uh, client, patient, you know, individual toward closer to whatever their goal is, right? And, and so, right, right. like your your experience lies in getting specific training effects, right? right. Whereas a lot of like the sports medicine is kind of um, figuring out what the mechanism of pain is and then understanding some of like the deeper function, whether it's, you know, joint range of motion or, um, uh, you know, tissue rigidity or, or tone or whatever it may be. And so it's just kind right. of that, that back and forth communication about, like you said, it's like, what, what can they do where they're not going to get injured? And then I'm right. going to do that because that's going to make them better. Right. Yeah. Load much. it and yeah. And, and just kind of make it better. Um, so I guess, kind of last thing I want to get into a little bit is um, just kind of going into where you are now, because I, I do find it really interesting that, and I know it's, it's becoming super popular where you're finding a lot of interdisciplinary settings. And so where you right. are at Monarch, it, it kind of takes some of the performance training, um, e even like a, um, I mean, you have physicians on staff, you have physiotherapists, um, tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing at Monarch and, and kind of, you know, what your experience has been with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Monarch has been fantastic. It's been a great learning experience, and it's also been a huge challenge to develop a system that works with three different uh, disciplines under one roof and how to integrate them all. And uh, you know, by this point, we've pretty much we've pretty much got it down, but we're ever evolving. We're we're you know, we we find it, figure out a new idea or a new approach, we we try to implement it because there's you know we're just we're just trying to get better all the time, just like everyone else. But um, I'll just put it to you like this: so if you're a member that signs up at Monarch, <clears throat> you're you get three initial you get three initial evaluations. So first first thing first point of contact for everyone that signs up is to meet with a physician. You sit down, talk about, um, you know, your, your daily habits, your lifestyle habits on a daily basis. Uh, you get a blood panel, so you get to see, um, you get to quantify uh, and you get to like objectively see what are your current, you know, what are your, what are your, what are your, what are your current cortisol levels at, your endocrine markers at, your hormone or your hormonal uh, markers at, and the doctor, uh, the physician will help you attack those things from a lifestyle perspective. And, you know, if, they need, if there needs to be any sort of medical interventions, then um, obviously the doctor is there to assist you with any, with any of, those things, of those things. However, most of the time, um, they, most of those things that contribute to the lack of whatever it is that you see from the blood panel is just typically lifestyle behaviors and lifestyle um, interventions that need to be implemented and they usually just clean themselves mm -hmm. out which is really cool i love i really love our physician's approach he just keep, he just really keeps things simple and just allows the body to put itself back together like into homeostasis just by tweaking a few lifestyle factors getting enough sleep getting enough water getting enough food and that usually is is the answer for most things obviously there's other cases out there but that's typically that so that's essentially the first discipline right there is is the is the physician uh oh, oh actually i forgot one thing sorry back to the That's back okay. to the blood panel uh in addition to the blood panel dr green I, I pretty much touched on it but he's he's helping you understand what your lifestyle behaviors are in terms of consumption of water food and and sleep but also if you need if you're a person that needs help from a nutrition perspective he's there to help you 
Uh, we've teamed up with a, with a handful of um, meal prep services mm-hmm. and, um, and we also have a weight management, a weight management um, company that works with us as well. That's, that's, those are separate entities of Monarch, but we've built, we've built great relationships with these, with these teams and they've, they've been able to help us, you know, get people to where they need to be. Um, so yeah, that's essentially the medical side. That's the medical side of, of Monarch. And then moving right. on to the, the PT side of Monarch is after your second point of contact is your evaluation with uh, one of our physical therapists. And um, we're pretty, we're pretty, we're pretty heavily uh, enveloped in the FRC system. So um, our physical therapists uh, will take you through what's called an FRA, which is the functional range assessment. So essentially you take a, we'll take you through a joint by joint assessment from your neck all the way to your toes and see what your passive and active ranges of motion are, um, see what your deficiencies are and, and, and um, the deficits between your active and passive and see if those are any contributing factors to what your injury history has been or your current injury situation or aches and pain situation is. Um, and the PT staff does a fantastic job of like building out a profile um, that we share in each meeting if a new member signs up. So right. uh, for like, and communication is huge within this model because everyone needs to understand what's going on with each person. Um, and it's essentially the same thing as the pro model. Um, just to just to divulge for a second, rule we'll, like when I was with the Indiana Pacers, every single morning, the entire performance staff meets. We're talking uh, uh-huh. dietitian, uh, sports psychologist, PTs, ATs, and performance staff, and everyone else in between. If I'm missing anybody, and we'd go down the list of the 15 guys uh, on the on the roster. How's this person doing? How's that person doing after last night after last night's game? How how's their knee? How does their knee feel uh, after falling on their knee last night? Whatever it is, you know, how does this person feel? What do we need to do with that person today to get them ready for tonight or get them ready for tomorrow night, whatever it is? Um, it's kind of the same thing over at Monarch, except we have two formal meetings a week and then we, we communicate constantly throughout the week. Um, and instead of, you know, managing 15 athletes, we have, you know, 120 or more clients right now. So um, we definitely have to, that's where communication is huge because we're, mm-hmm. we're keeping markers on all these people. There's tons of you know variables. We don't know what they're doing outside of here, but we're doing our best to manage them while they're within our space. And hopefully, um, you know, we're hammering in enough good values um, to where they're executing outside the space and they're doing all the things they need to be doing to essentially reach their goals. You know, we're, we're just here to help you reach your goals, but we have three different dimensions and three different like methods to attack that, that goal, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it seems to be like, I mean, one of the main things that I'm kind of taking away from the conversation too, is, is in order to kind of, uh, I guess, give the best approach toward, you know, the individual, the team, whoever it is that you're working with, usually it takes, uh, a, a team approach. And I, I like how you oh. kind of went back and, and pulled back the debrief. Cause I mean, it's something that, uh, we used to do at the, um, the chiropractic practice that I worked at before where, you know, we would talk with uh front desk staff, the rehab staff, and essentially just kind of debrief the day and say, where's everybody at? And, and kind of everybody gets their input and then there's a specific plan moving forward. And I think that that right. can be done, um, yeah, it's just, it's a great takeaway because regardless of uh, whoever it is that's listening, that's, you know, 
in, in whatever role in that spectrum, um, being able to hear about, you know, what, what other people are focusing on helps to kind of create those, uh, those bridges to be able to make those connections and have those conversations with people so that even if you're not necessarily under one roof, um, you can be collaborating with people. It doesn't have to be every day, but if you're working with somebody trying right. to accomplish a goal, um, understanding that team approach can definitely end up benefiting the person that you're working with most. And so, yeah, I, I think definitely. it really can... is, yeah, just, just about kind of, yeah, breaking out of your comfort zone, get, getting to talk to those people and, and learning how to communicate about those things. But, well, oh yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, we, uh, one way we break it down is essentially each of these pillars the you know the medical the sports medicine and the training like individually by themselves they're all broken systems like mm -hmm. for example if you go to the doctor and you get your blood done and the doctor says hey you need to take this prescription medicine and get this much sleep and drink this much water and whatever it is they may tell you to do those things but then you're not going to see that doctor for another six months a year whatever it is like People don't see the doctor that often, you know? Um, so that's a, that's a broken system. Uh, same goes with, same goes with PT. Uh, you know, athletes or people, they just go to PT when they're hurt, but when they're not hurt or even when they are hurt and, you know, let's say, um, let's just say, for example, when they are hurt, you, they come to you, they rehab, they may finish the, they may finish the entire rehab process, whether it's post-op, early stages, acute stages or, or so on. Or they might not. They might just stop, and a lot of people do. But essentially, that system is broken too. Because whether they finish the rehab or not, once they leave your doors, they're not going to come back unless they get hurt again. But maybe they might just go somewhere else, right? right? Yeah. So you're not going to see them again. You can't monitor them. And the same goes for training. Training by itself is a broken system. Uh, you don't have the resources of a PT and a doctor at your side the whole time. You training is training by itself is great, but there are so many other variables that are missing. And you can only accomplish so much by training alone. Um, and like, yeah, obviously nutrition is also a big part of body composition and training, but a lot of, a lot of coaches don't, don't consult with nutrition. They also aren't usually that qualified to, and mm -hmm. also their approaches usually aren't that um, easy to adhere to. Like most people, you know, want to track, want to track macros, which is in my opinion, the best way to, you know, get you, get your goals in terms of from a body composition perspective. Right. However, it is the most, is the hardest, the most intimidating and the most, and the hardest to adhere to, you know, like counting macros sucks. So <laughs> if, you know, like it does, if, and if that's, if that's your approach, most people aren't going to succeed because most people don't care about counting macros. Don't want to, don't want to count macros. Don't want to spend the time doing it. So you're going to fail in that system. You know what I'm saying? So, having a doctor and a physician and a, and obviously a strength and conditioning staff all under one roof with many different approaches, many different philosophies that can, but we can all agree on one thing and that's essentially helping you. We'll figure out a way to help you. You know, it's a, essentially a foolproof, in my opinion, a foolproof system. We just, you just can't lose, you know, like, right. Yeah. 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 I, I, and I mean, I, I think, yeah. Uh, like you said, it's like trying to think that one individual approach is going to, you know, solve a, a multifaceted problem. Um, 
right. is, yeah, it's, it's negligent to the context of, of the problem as a whole. It's like, you know, exactly. be, yeah, you can be really good at, at your approach, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, just your approach is going to fix it. And so, yeah, being collaborative, being integrative, um, yeah, it, it definitely seems to be the way to go. And I know it's, it's not a new concept, but it's, it's really exciting to see the developments in a lot of these, um, I mean, in, in health and wellness in general, which is, which is why I was really excited to have you on and, and to be able to kind of bring in some insights into that entire realm. Um, cause I do think that the more that we learn about what each other does and the specificity that, that the context of our, our individual approaches, the easier it becomes to really kind of communicate and better understand and then better serve the people that we're trying to serve. Um, absolutely. Well said. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah, we, there's so much stuff that we can continue talking about, but I think we should, uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we can leave it for another episode. We'll definitely have you back on. Um, I hope you had cool. fun doing it. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah, of course. There's a lot of really gold information and, uh, and exciting stuff. So, uh, yeah, we, we really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well done. Absolutely. Any, man. Uh, I appreciate yeah. Any parting words for you? Anything you want to uh, let people know? Man, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're, in, if you're in the industry, whether it's strength and conditioning, sports medicine, or otherwise, I mean, and if you're, if you're ever in LA, Los Angeles, and you want to stop by and, you know, uh, talk shop, come, feel free. So if you want to get a hold of me, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. pretty active on Instagram. Um, that's kind of it in terms of the social media. But if you want to follow at Nate Shemtov underscore coach, uh, you'll be able to find me there. Sweet. Well. Coach Nate, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. <laughs> of Until course, next well, time, thank sir. you. Absolutely. Okay.